Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest US regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Okay, so let's do a hypothetical. Just to put all this in a, in a, in a real world example, we're on a Bitcoin standard. Breedlove buys a bunch of miners from me. I'm a, I'm a merchant, so I've, I've got a, I'm a retailer. I've got a... I've got a, a um, a warehouse or a storefront and you buy a bunch of miners from me and um, there's a backlog. So we're going to deliver them in six months. So you sign a purchase order from me to pay for them in Bitcoin. So we're on a Bitcoin standard at today's price on delivery, which is in six months. So the contract is for two and a half Bitcoin. And because I'm the merchant, I'm holding the contract. So then I turn around and I place an order with Bitmain for a batch of miners, but I need to pay Bitmain up front because that's my deal with them. So I place an order with them, but they charged me. I, I overcharged you by 20, 25%. It only cost me two Bitcoin, but you paid me 2.5. But uh, I don't have the two Bitcoin and that I owe to Bitmain. I, it, I know that I, as I'm saying this, it sounds complicated, but this is really how things work. Like this is how um like businesses work so i i hope you can keep up is, is this too complicated so far are you following this no no okay. this makes perfect sense okay, and this so is I'm that dislocation i was talking about yeah so i'm a merchant we you you, you made this purchase from me i charged 2.5 bitcoin and i got to pay the, the manufacturer two bitcoin but of course i don't have that maybe i'm a new merchant and i don't have my own capital and so I go to my bank who I've got a good relationship with and I discount this, this purchase order. I essentially securitize the purchase order and they want to charge me 5%. So they give me 2.375 Bitcoin. I give two of that to Bitmain. I keep 3.75 Bitcoin because that's my profit. And then if you add 0.375 with 0.125, you get 0.5. So the total transaction was for 2.5. 0.125 went to the bank as the VIG. 0.375 is my profit. And two went to Bit, Bitmain. And I get that 0.375. And then in, in six months, 
when you pay the full amount, that gets paid, that goes to the bank because they now own that security. And then the whole contract is wiped out, aka liquidated. That's the self-liquidating right. thing we've been talking about. And now the you have your miners, Bitmain got paid, I made a profit, the bank made a profit. So now that was a credit transaction. And and, and then the question is, is the Rothbart might say, this is inflationary. Is it inflationary? Is it not inflationary? You know, it, it seems on the surface that it's both yes and no. You could say it's not inflationary because it got liquidated. And so the, the amount existed temporarily in the economy, but then it got wiped out. So I'd say, yeah, it's both inflationary and it's not inflationary, but it depends more. The answer to that isn't just a, a duration question. It actually depends on whether the bank gives me Bitcoin to spend or whether they give me a, a Bitcoin claim. And then it depends on what type of payment the, the merchant wants. The more people don't require actual Bitcoin, the more inflationary it is. Right. So yeah, the more Bitcoin IOUs in circulation, right. the more inflationary. Right. So like, just let's imagine the most inflationary example of this which I think is completely possible, just for people who think that there could be no inflation on a disinflationary money. I, I think that there will be Bitcoin one-for-one one backed fiat or, or tokens for one simple reason, and that is lenders, more than anything, can't lose their money. And so if someone's lending money into the economy, they don't want any risk that you're going to lose the keys to the Bitcoin. I think lenders would actually rather lend a one-for-one one guaranteed backed Bitcoin equivalent token so that whoever borrows it can't fuck it up and lose it forever. They just want to recoup the, the principal. And so the, the function of a, of a centralized token that if someone uh, loses their keys or something, you're not going to impoverish the, the, the lender. I think that's a, a function that lenders will want. They won't want to loan out the actual physical Bitcoin, but some might, but it might cost a lot more. So assuming that that logic is correct and that lenders require, even if it's at a one-to-one -one value, assume now that it's the same transaction. You sign a purchase order, I take it to the bank, and they create a Bitcoin deposit account for me. It's not actual Bitcoin. I just have an account at the bank. So they still charge their 5% interest. But the 2.375 Bitcoin that they credit to me is just pure inflation. That's just, that's just Bitcoin created out of thin air. It's their credit balance claim on Bitcoin. So here's the thing. If there's another bank in the whole banking system that actually believes, this is the key part, if they believe in the credit worthiness of my bank, mm. then they're going to honor that deposit. And they're going to let me spend that 2.375 into their bank because it has the name of my bank on the check because they trust that they'll get it. So now we're moving funds around in the Bitcoin banking system with Bitcoin that's been created from thin air. And that is inflationary. And still my bank, they're still holding this securitized instrument, which is the purchase order. Again, we're, we're imagining the most inflationary example. Maybe they sell that 
into the market for a smaller discount, maybe 3%. So then, and again, to make this the most inflationary possible, my bank is willing to receive in payment for selling that security, an interbank credit, not actual Bitcoin. So now they have a deposit account in their, net, in their name with bank B for 2.425, which is the 2.5 minus 3%. So they're, they still have a tiny bit of profit because they owe 2.375 to me, but they now have a credit for 2.425. So now we've created 2.375 plus 2.425. We created all this extra Bitcoin and no mm-hmm. Bitcoin has changed hands. So this is extremely inflationary. So depending on all the assumptions of the system, if that bank credit is all considered cash, and if 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 bank credit, if bank B is credit worthy and bank A is credit worthy, then suddenly we're able to now 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 we're creating a lot of Bitcoin. And because they're banks, and because banks can use their cash balances with other banks as reserves. Now we've created about roughly five Bitcoin worth of, out of thin air. They can now write loans against those ba- those that those balances. So inflation is still possible. What changes the game is if anyone along the way requires the actual Bitcoin for payment, mm-hmm. then you start to remove leverage from the system. If my bank wants to sell the security but they don't really, they want it, they sell it to bank B whose credit worthiness they don't trust. They're going to require actual settlement with Bitcoin. And then now you've removed a ton of leverage from the system. So again, it's, that's if convertibility is at all possible, now you have a system that might be able to contain its own inflation. I, I just feel like We've all thought, oh, Bitcoin is so inflationary. It would, there's no way it could run an economy on it. I think it. I, I don't think it'll be much different, really. Yeah. So a couple of things here. I think first key point here is that you know credit is money, effectively, right? You can expand the money supply just by issuing credit or debt. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and that's equivalent, right? It's equivalent to expanding the money supply, which is very important. So the more of these Bitcoin IOUs or interbank credits, liabilities, whatever you want to call them, that there are in circulation, that is inflationary. That's an expansion of the money supply. Um, to your point, I think that banks being risk averse are more likely to issue letters of credit rather than physical Bitcoin because mm-hmm. that reduces their risk. Um, and this is basically, this is the money creation process, right? Like if you, you can Google this term money creation process. Um, and this is exactly how banks work in fiat world, right? They create liabilities on top of liabilities. It's, it's leverage on top of leverage, um, across networks of these transactions. The one thing I would point out here that might be a little bit different in a Bitcoin world is we have to question the continued likelihood of, in this example, Robert going through Lester to purchase Bitcoin miners rather than going directly to Bitmain. You know, like we would expect transactions to be less intermediated in a digitized future. Um, not to say that it goes away completely, but I think it would be less 
intermediate intermediated than it is today. Um, and I guess the other point too is I, you know, although it's in the bank's interest to issue the bank letter of credit rather than physical Bitcoin, uh, it seems like parties to a transaction would opt to deal in physical Bitcoin as much as possible. Um, now, in this case where you said you're a new merchant, you don't have any money and you just have credit with a bank. Sure, that makes sense there. But in other for more established firms or individuals, I think you'd be more likely to just deal in physical Bitcoin rather than credit instruments because Bitcoin's so hypermobile. Um, and you could just, you know, basically avoid financing charges. I think, I think, I think you're right. I think that like a lot of why credit again, credit is necessary. It was because gold wasn't transportable. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it really depends on banking has much more to do with relationships than anyone ever taught me. Yeah, and um, for sure. Or, or in my fiat life, I remember I, I had to go into a bank. I had a check from a, from a, um, a customer for $200,000. And I needed to deposit it on a Friday and I needed to be able to, to, to withdraw cash against it the next day and it sound, I, I sounded like a scammer. I was walking into a bank in a branch that didn't know me. And I was like, you have to credit me this tonight and I need the cash tomorrow. It's, it's, and they, they were saying, I went into a different branch and they're like, well, we, we can't clear it. And I was like, can't you, this is actually when I learned that banks, there's no like central system where banks can just verify that everyone has the money, or at least there wasn't then. This was not too long ago. I'm like, no, I was like, but it's a, I think it was like a Chase Bank check from a, from a client. And um, they're like, no, we, when we debit your account, we debit it based on, we think that the money's there, but that's why I like the waiting periods there. Luckily, I was able to go cross town to the branch where I'd been for over a decade. And I was like, hey, I need this money tomorrow. And they're like, well, we, we've known you for 10 years. And so, yeah, you can, you can have it tomorrow, but it's only because we know you. I was like, right. wow, that's, that's banking. That's just because mm -hmm. they, that's, that's, that's the definition of credit, honestly, mm -hmm. right there. Yeah. Credit and worthiness. So we, right. And so I think, I think your point is, is a good one. I think that I was trying to conjure the most inflationary example possible mm -hmm. for how inflation could still happen in a Bitcoin system when, you know, everyone's um, full of exuberance. But I think more likely what you're saying is correct, which is that people won't do that. And there, there won't be nearly as much inflation. Yeah. And this is distant. You know, you gave the very inflationary example. I'm kind of giving the counter example. Mm -hmm. um, and these are both distant Bitcoinized futures. I think what we're going to more likely see during the monetization of Bitcoin is what we see today, right? People borrowing fiat against their Bitcoin to fund purchases or operations or uh, pre present spending. And in some of those instances, you have lenders like, you know, the BlockFi's of the world happy to provide that loan, but they're going to turn around and take that collateral and rehypothecate it. They're mm -hmm. going to loan it out, you know, to um, funds and all these other things for, for short selling and, and other activities, which is inflationary, right? They're rehypothecating the collateral. So 
it's not like Bitcoin's just some kind of magic bullet that makes inflation just disappear overnight. Like there's totally. a lot of a lot of ways uh, you can have inflationary pressures even on the Bitcoin standard. Yeah, and I think that was like such a stumbling block for me in imagining this future. But I don't, I don't, I don't have that. I don't have that problem. I don't know that problem anymore. I think you're exactly right. So, and by the way, some banks won't rehypothecate. Mm-hmm. Some will give you the loan and they'll keep the collateral locked away and they might charge a little bit more for that. Mm-hmm. That'll be a service. That'll be something you choose. You know, I want a lower interest rate, but I don't know for sure if my collateral is there or do I want to know right. my collateral there and I'll pay a little bit extra. Again, that's the this, market finding the interest rate. Yeah, and again, just to reiterate, those are the two original functions of banking is the maturity matching between lenders and borrowers in custody, right? So mm-hmm. if you want to not have to worry about custody and you want to put it with a bank, in fiat world, you get paid for that deposit, right? Well, at least you used to. We barely get paid anything now. But in a Bitcoin world, you're more likely to have to pay for that custody function. Right. Safety had a really interesting answer to what will the Bitcoin stand, what will, what, what will central banks look like on a Bitcoin standard? And I had never heard this version, but he said that I think there will be thousands and thousands of them. And they'll be, each will be a small community of node people who run nodes on behalf of their friends and family. And it'll be more about, um, verification of transaction, transaction propagation, they'll just be much smaller and much more community oriented and there'll be a lot more of them and they won't be central. Hmm. That was a very plausible answer to me. I, I like that. I like picturing it that way a lot. Yeah, that maps up nicely onto this other vision of the future where you know, the Bitcoin mining is causing, in theory, incentivizing or causing populations to kind of spread out, right, to the cheapest energy sources, frankly. So maybe those, you know, Bitcoin mining communities become economic enclaves that have their own central banks like we're describing that are, they're not even central banks at that point, right? They're more like community banks. And if you need, if you really need capital, what you'll likely do is go to people who will loan you the Bitcoin, which will serve as your collateral for the loan. They won't, there'll be maybe two loans in a sense. One loan will be, you can borrow the collateral from someone to get an interest loan from someone else. I don't know if that makes sense. You're saying, um, Borrow the collateral from a holder to fund a business. Yes, if yeah, if someone if someone if someone who you know has the collateral, like someone in your family, and you can borrow the Bitcoin right. from them, and then with that, just so that they don't have to worry that you're now spending that there. Let's say it's your 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 mom and your dad and your uncle, and you want to start a business, and you don't want them to lose their their actual Bitcoin by spending it into the economy, mm-hmm. but they'll loan it to you where you can place it under custody with someone else who'll give you right. a claim 
And then you can, then with those funds, you go and start your business. Yeah. They know their funds are safe. They've loaned it to you to use as capital, but they're also not going to lose it. Unless it's kind of like business. the bank letter of credit we were talking about earlier, right? Yeah. Yeah. Again, that's, yeah. that's why I think like lenders will just want some assurance that, that, that at least it's dummy proof. Like I believe in your talent, but I don't yeah. believe in your ability to, to, to self custody uh, a few million dollars of Bitcoin or several years worth of wages. So I'll loan it to you, but you have to keep it somewhere reputable and safe. Yes. And then they'll give you the, the spending instrument, the media, the fiduciary media to spend. That to me feels like a use case for some type of fiat or substitute, money substitute. Yeah, like you said earlier, you know, the number one thing lenders must avoid is basis risk or counterparty risk or losing principal, right? Yeah. So same is true for members of these hypothetical community banks that, sure, I believe in you and your talents as an entrepreneur, but I don't want to take counterparty risk or basis risk in you holding this asset. I'd rather put it on deposit with a proven custodian and let you draw mm -hmm. against it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that's sort of why I've always had this instinct that there will be some other money alongside Bitcoin. I think it'll, and again, that's why the gold standard is such a great comparison. Mm -hmm. And I think that the cent, the, the, the problem with the gold standard is that it, it necessitated, these central banks grew out of it because, because in the 1600s, someone needed to A, standardize coinage and then B, then get exclusive rights from the local government to make the money or to issue the paper money when it, when, when, it, when the technologically or societally people were ready for paper money, you needed someone who had like the right to do it on behalf of the bank. And they got that right by loaning the money to the government. But I mean, even though Pali is pretty complimentary to central banks there, they, it's, it's not even like on the gold standard, they, they still weren't, perfect i don't mean to engage in 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 too much myth making but there were there were still problems with central banks and so it might be one adaptation that bitcoin standard has is that it doesn't doesn't have them um because central banks they they make no mistake they started as commercial for-profit banks mm -hmm. and that is the beginning of our contradiction that we're still living out. Um, you know, these commercial banks in Europe and America, they were given um, the exclusive charter to print currency, redeemable for gold, but they were also responsible to shareholders. And yet, like all these, they pulled in all these different directions, also obligated to suffer the impact of gold flowing in and out of the country and reduce their, their reserves and their liabilities and keep up with the balance of payments, which is sort of like a public good that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And then there are all these commercial banks that sprang up around them that were competing with them for the same business that they got into the, into the market to, to, to satisfy. So there's another book. I'm jumping ahead now. There's another book. Um, called Money and Empire. And he's, he's, he's a little bit more critical of the central banking system at that time than Pal Yi is. And he points out the way tensions developed under the gold standard 
that I think is worth noting. He writes, the first six months of 1914, which is the end of the classical gold standard, had seen long-standing internal tensions in the British financial system become even more strained. Looking at the Bank of England's puny gold stock and her inflexible note issue, we're going back to the um, De Peel's Act, which we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. British joint stock banks had begun to believe that they had no effective lender of last resort either. Following the bearing crisis in which a coalition of joint stock banks, um, they were urged to increase the balance they held at the Bank of England. They had obliged only to discover that the bank had used their funds to compete with them in the discount market. The basic contradiction in the system was reemphasized. A central bank was being made to perform public functions at a cost which it had to recoup and supplement with profit derived from private commercial banking operations, but those operations were in competition with the very intermediaries it was supposed to control. (laughs) Joint stock banks soon withdrew their support, devoting themselves instead to constructing an alternative credit credit network, which excluded the traditional finance houses. Um, So, you know, 1914 brought a cruel end to the gold standard, but it may have ended on its own due to simmering tensions within the banking complex, which were maybe they would have erupted at that point. Um, Badgett writes about the same thing, but in 18, he, he's writing about it in 1873, the same thing was already happening. He writes in 1844, so 30 years before this is written, the dividend on the stock of the Bank of England was 7% and the price of the stock was 212 pounds sterling. The dividend now, so the dividend in 1873 is 9%. So it's up 2% from when, from 1844. In 1873, it's 9%, and the price of stock is 232 pounds. So the price of stock has increased, the dividend has increased a little bit. But in the same time, the shares of the London and Westminster Bank, in spite of an addition of 100% to capital, grew from 27 to 66 as the share price, and the dividend grew from 6% to 20% that the bank proprietors should not like to see other companies getting rich, richer than their company is only natural. And he goes on later on, some part of the lowness of the bank dividend and the consequent small value of the bank stock is undoubtedly caused by the magnitude of the bank capital. Much of it also due to the great amount of unproductive cash, which yields no interest to the banking department of the Bank of England keeps lying idle. The London and Westminster Bank, a Bank of England competitor, but not the central bank, has only 13% of its liabilities lying idle. The banking department of the Bank of England has over 40%. Inevitably, the shareholders of the Bank of England will dislike this great difference, more or less. They will always urge their directors to diminish as far as possible the unproductive reserve and augment as far as possible their own dividend. So when you get into central banking and you and you create a lender of last resort, then that lender of last resort has to keep a ton of cash on the ready but then that is unproductive cash. And so unless it's a state-run enterprise, then it's always going to be at odds with the banks that it supports. So I think it's very difficult to run a central bank. I mean, it's very difficult it's always, to run a central bank. Yeah, it's competitively inferior. So it ends yes. up requiring state support or subsidy to survive. Right. So I don't have an answer for that. I mean, I, I, I don't know what that would look like. I feel like 
our answer of a bunch of small central banks. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what the, the answer is. It's, 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 the, the answer is that a, a, a government has to have savings. Yeah, it needs to be solvent, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, um, that's the answer. And no lender of last resort. That's insane. Lender of last resort implies that you can plunder, you know, if it's a public institution, that you can plunder the savings of society whenever there's an emergency declared. Right. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. A bank could theoretically extend emergency credits if it had, if it was credit worthy, credit worthy in the sense that I could walk into my branch on Friday at 4 p.m. with a check and say, I need this cash. And they'd say, okay, we know you, so we're going to do it. Yeah. That, that credit worthiness is purely reputation based. Yes. And so if, a, if there was an emergency like um, uh, a disease or an attack, or aliens, and a government said, "Hey, look, we're going to need, uh, you know, hundred thousand Bitcoin." There may be a bank that says, "We, we know you, and we, we think you're credit worthy." But there's going to have to be deflation on the other side. Once the once the crisis is over, this Bitcoin will serve as a pre-commitment mechanism, knowing that yeah. it, the debt will have to be paid back. The twisted thing here, though, is that the credit worthiness of a government is derived from the profitability of coercion, right? It's like the expected future cash flows from a taxing authority. So how efficient and effective will your government organization be at stealing from people into the future? That's basically the core determinant of government credit worthiness. 
and it's gotten so perverse in the fiat world because they have the legal monopoly on currency. So in theory, like we call the U.S. Treasury, the risk-free rate, right? They can just print current. We, we, they, whatever. Uh, the central bank can print currency, buy government bonds, inject liquidity into the system in such a way that the government can effectively always pay its bills. Um, mm -hmm. But clearly, all that cost is externalized onto productive users of dollars. Yeah, I, I think this is um, maybe the stickiest question in all of governance, of, of like human governance, is, uh, and I want. I, it's like I can't even. I can't even really allow myself to go into it because I. I haven't given any thought. I don't have any answers. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how um, a government pays its way without it. Yeah, this, the sticky question I'm assuming is like, how much coercion is the right amount of coercion? Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, it's my view that it's absolute, absolutely zero. I just don't, I don't think it makes any sense at all. Perhaps it's necessary as part of like human evolutionary development to get to this point. But I think in this, the big shining promise of the digital age is like we could actually have a society that's almost totally free of coercion. And the effect that would have on wealth creation, I think is just astronomical. What does the sovereign, what does the sovereign individual say about how does, does it, does it, does it speculate on what, what replaces the nation state or does something replace the nation state? And how does it work? Well, um, it, it gives a number of examples, but I mean, the, the long, the long run replacement is the sovereign individual actually, right? It's at the individual level, we have the negotiating power that's traditionally associated with, with nation states. Um, it doesn't say people will stop coming together in groups, but the need to come together in groups is dramatically reduced uh, in the digital age. And it, it's very fundamental too, because there's this other, I don't know if you've ever read this old paper. Um, I hope I can remember the name of it now. The Purpose of the Firm, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, essentially makes the case that the firm, like a uh, business organization exists as a means of amortizing contract cost. So, or transaction costs more generally. So the, the cheaper, I guess the punchline would be the cheaper transaction costs are between economic agents, the smaller of firm size we need. Like you don't need to, there's not as much transaction cost to amortize into this collective fiction we call an organization. So the thread there to the digital age is like, okay, transaction costs fall precipitously mm -hmm. in this uh, what would you call this? Like a a much more liquid free market environment, right? Like all the things we're talking about, where you can price discovery would would be accelerated in the digital age. The liquidity mm -hmm. of ideas, just information, moves much more freely. So, which is to say, it moves with much less transaction cost. So, in theory, the the organizations we put ourselves into or what the forms we self-organize into should be much smaller because there's less transaction cost to amortize. I hope that made some sense. 
I'm trying to understand that the idea that transaction cost, large transaction cost leads to a larger organization. And I guess that makes sense. Like if, tra if the transaction cost of transacting of final settlement in 1873 was okay, we need to ship seven tons of gold and we need to do it on, um, in an armada of ships and they need uh, a flotilla and an army or they need a train or they need wagons. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna need um, a series of garrisons along the way. I mean, I can see how that transaction is so expensive and so burdensome that you need essentially an army just to transact. Right. And now I have this small node running on my desk that allows me to, I mean, I could, transact the amount of value that a nation state transacted to yes. anyone anywhere with no army right for yeah you can move a billion dollars in bitcoin for less than five bucks right so it means that I'm, move... a I'm a customer of the world's what the world has to offer i'm a customer for free y yeah it's um uh, the flip side of that is you can also move, you know, micro cent transactions in Bitcoin cost effectively, mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily on main chain. Like this, I'm now pulling in things like lightning network and whatnot, um, which admittedly are not full scale, but you know, that's uh, again, we're back into kind of the theoretical promise territory of Bitcoin. I mean, cash um, app enabling lightning. I, there's so many things that I feel like to haven't registered I think to, I think to, I've been like absorbing people's comments on this series. And I think a lot of people respond to just the very personal journey that, that, that we go through as Bitcoiners mm -hmm. in this um, hyper Bitcoinization process. And I feel like there's this, there's this um, quiet, calm place that you have to find inside yourself again and again, where this is um, maybe a month ago, we dropped down to somewhere in the thirties and I, and I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Why are we doing this? This isn't what I planned. This is not what I planned for the, the fiat price of Bitcoin to be right now. And it doesn't square with what I thought was happening. And I ruminated on it for several days and there was a morning I woke up and um, I just had to say to myself, this is the wrong price. That, 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 that would, coming to that realization again for the millionth time and being able to say that to myself was what allowed me to let go of the anxiety. But you have to, you, you have to look at what's happening and say, this is the right or this is the wrong price. When I look at like Cash App enabling Lightning, I sent sats to the truckers through Cash App. Yeah. Hopefully they get it, but th that is so astounding. It, it's, it's so astounding that I can tell you that the network which makes that possible is currently at the wrong price by a lot. Yes. Und to, to the downside, it's undervalued by a lot. 
Absolutely. Um, and I guess we're back to that point you made previously of holding is not easy, right? You spend a lot of energy building this wall of conviction. <laughs> yeah, it's a full time. It's full time. Yeah. Um, but when you get there, it's you become very, I guess I'd say, quite desensitized to price overall. At least I'm speaking from my own perspective because. Yes, at this point in time, based on my own model, I expected the Bitcoin price to be much higher. But that model also presupposed that the cycles were still an ongoing phenomenon. And it looks like, you know, Bitcoin might be evolving out of this having cyclical pattern. And then further, with that wall of conviction built, I don't feel bad that Bitcoin is priced below where I thought it should be based on a model. I'm actually kind of excited by it. It's like, oh, great. I get to expand my footprint on footprint on this network even more in the meantime. So, Well, the liquidity principle that we're talking about, it's not just for banks, it's for people. And yeah. if you observe this, if you observe basic rules of liquidity, where you put yourself in a position where you, you know, as Pal, you said, the definition of liquidity is that you never need to liquidate. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, tying all these things we've been saying together, if you are inherently conservative, if you buy Bitcoin as part of a conservative savings plan, and you know that your life is priced in dollars and you make allowances for that, such that you never need to liquidate, or that you know that liquidating is okay you know the 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 get on i'm i'm sort of on board with the get on zero movement but you have to be mm -hmm. comfortable like that you're gonna have to sell some bitcoin to live month to month and that i don't really have a problem with that i, I think that's actually better than borrowing against it personally um well you gotta watch the tax bill of that though right depending on your basis and you have to watch it, but it's just I don't I don't really have a problem with it. It is it's like I only I only will owe taxes if it if I sell it for more dollars than I bought it for. So having taxes just means that I profited in dollars. You just have to do the work, the accounting work. Yeah, yeah. I guess when I say be careful, I mean you just have to accrue. Whenever you're selling Bitcoin to pay current expenditure, presumably you have a capital gain because. Bitcoin number go up. Mm -hmm. I think almost every time you buy Bitcoin in the past 13 years, you're in the money, right? Except for a few episodes in the past few months. So you have to accrue for that tax liability that you're incurring right? when you sell Bitcoin to cover rent or whatever else. Right. And then there was, um, uh, there was a spaces on this that was really good and it was laser huddle held it and he didn't make this point someone else made it but i think there's another mental barrier that that bitcoiners have against paying taxes which is that well if i sell bitcoin because i owe capital gains if i if i sell bitcoin i owe capital gains but if i owe capital gains i have to sell more bitcoin to cover the capital gains but then i've got capital gains from that and i have to sell bitcoin to cover those there's this recursive problem that is so it's so frustrating that you just want to avoid it at all costs. And I feel like it's fine. Just the answer is that capital gains only happen once a year. So you don't have to, you don't have to instantly pay the gains 
on the thing you sold, you just sell it, pay the gains or keep track of them. And at the end of the year, pay, sell to pay the bill. And by and large, I think the smartest thing you can do as a Bitcoiner is just have a job, make a wage, keep your expenses low, live off of your labor and save money in Bitcoin. That's it. 100%. Yeah. Like there's a lot of unnecessary pain, I think, related to selling Bitcoin taxes being high on that list. Yeah. Um, also being out of the market and all these other things. Um, it, yeah. You get back to principles of prudence, which are just have an income, live below your means, save yeah. in Bitcoin. <laughs> always live below your means. Always, always live beneath your means. Always. I mean, that's just been like my most cherished method of operation since I was in my twenties. So I, I, had a, mm -hmm. I had a mentor tell me that I got my first job. Yeah. He's this guy from New York. He's like, always live beneath your means. And I always did. I've heard it put too that it's standard among the super rich to spend about 2% of their net worth per year. So I don't know where that line is drawn exactly. Maybe it's 50 million and up. Um, but if you're doing that and you have an income and you have some yield on whatever your net worth is, like if you even have a moderate 5% yield and you're only spending 2% and you have an income, that means you're growing, right? You're, you're living a comfortable life and growing. Now, clearly that doesn't apply to a lot of people because spending 2% of your net worth doesn't work for a lot of people, but I think it's something to aspire for. Yeah, I think for me, my, my gauge was, did I, did I have enough money in the bank to last for a year or a year and a half of unemployment? Which is like what mm -hmm. accountants say you should do six months. I always had a year, mm -hmm. year and a half. And in that sense, like I'm taking any crisis and I'm putting it on my balance sheet in advance. Right. So if everyone had the ability to do that through labor, then I think, I mean, think of like, if, if we had an economy where that was possible, if homes were affordable on one or two years of a middle-class income and savings were possible and we had a pandemic, um, let's say we had an actual plague where like there were corpses piling up in the street and you really couldn't go out, but people, you know, you had the majority of people had the year of savings, then you wouldn't have to print money to keep people solvent. Right. You have people paying rents, which are due on property prices, which are overvalued. Yeah. You know, you, you, I mean, we all know the cycle, but if, if, if homes were affordable on a middle-class income and if savings and retirement were affordable on a middle-class income, then you wouldn't have the kind of crises that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can take that a step further too people had say adequate savings uh, actual plague hits you know people start self-isolating or whatever a lot of that energy that they have would be directed at actually resolving the problems of the plague right whatever interruptions there were in the market or local community like people would be presumably focused on fixing that rather than <laughs> What do we have today in COVID world? People are like filing for unemployment, filing for these um, all these bailout loans and like just running through red tape, basically trying to get access to some of this 
freshly printed money. Um, people just wouldn't be mired in bureaucratic bullshit and they'd be doing something productive. I think is it, it just it government and bureaucracy and this this uh, embedded theft and coercion in the money via taxation, inflation, regulation. I think it's just so anti-productive. I think it's just so destructive to productivity because you end up just pushing paper around, right? <laughs> I don't have a feeling about it. I mean, I think this is one interesting difference between me and you because I feel like you're you're adamant about it in a way that I a respect b i don't have the feeling about it mm. my feeling is that um is that i just i said this in the last the last episode to to be released i tr saved for a decade for a house and still couldn't afford a house and that's when mm. i started to be like really frustrated but like you know i think it's because i sort of come from like the knee jerk lefty social const construct and i'm like more sanguine with the pot with the, with with taxes and with like the, mm -hmm. the 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 concept of the productive role of government and i grew up really believing in that and now i i i didn't i didn't have that taken away from me i just don't think about it very much i don't mm. i don't i don't mind it as much as you mind it but what i mind is that i can't save enough and that my own adherence to basic liquidity rules put me at a disadvantage. That's what I mind. And, and in, in a way, it's funny. In a way, because I'm, I'm on the one hand more left than you, my reaction is actually much more selfish than yours. I just don't like how it affected my outcome. And so that has led me to where I am today. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll try to keep it brief because we're back in tangent land again, but tangents are fun. So what really hit me like a ton of bricks on this is, is Mises and human action and the revelation that all government action is a misallocation of capital. And I think the, the way to think about this is like at any point in the world, you just take a snapshot of the world, there is a very particular and certain configuration of consumer wants or consumer wishes, right? Taxation, and in and this under taxation, I put inflation. I also include regulation because regulation is something that's enforced and funded via taxation. And um, the rule of law in general, by the way, it always grounds out in private property. So regulation is a distortion to the free use of property. Taxation always causes a withdrawal of capital from fulfilling that particular configuration of wishes to fulfilling the wishes of those who can tax. <laughs> so you're, it's always a misallocation of capital. If we consider that an intelligent allocation of capital is towards that configuration of consumer wishes that presides in the world, any amount of taxation or coercion, inflation, regulation you apply to that is by definition a misallocation of capital. And this is, I mean, this is my rough formulation of that argument. Mises mm -hmm. does it much more elaborately in human action. I encourage everyone to go check it out. But that hit me like an absolute ton of bricks. Again, if we're back to civilization is 
capital accumulation, right? They're almost the same thing. The more capital we accumulate, the more civilized we become. Every government action is funded by taxation. All taxation is a misallocation of capital. So the government is net destructive to civilization. That's how I see it. I don't have any desire to to argue with it. Um, <laughs> I I and I also don't. You're you're catching me at a weird decade, where I feel politically homeless and I don't know what I think. You know, I'm I mean I I uh, I'm not ready to say that there's no good use of government. It's a, I, I just. It's a bitter pill to swallow for sure yeah i i'm just i'm just I, you're even even though i haven't even though i you're i haven't read the mises that you're talking about your recapitulation of it is perfect and it and it sounds compelling to me like i i have no argument with it but um i i'm not i can't justify government and i'm not ready to I don't know, man. I, I'm 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 quite confused. That that that's really all I can say. On the one hand, I'm ready to I'm 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 somewhat standing up for government here, and yet, it was about two months ago. My wife and I were hanging out, and I said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna pose a hypothetical that I no longer think will happen. That hypothetical is suddenly Bitcoin's illegal." gut answer what do you do and she's like i guess we leave i was like that's what i thought too <laughs> so um somehow i feel like me, that instant gut answer from me does not that that puts me somewhere it it, it places me somewhere in the firmament of political thought and i don't know where it is right it's yeah, and because nowhere in that answer was adherence to the concept of what America is. Like, you know, it was like, well, I'm out. Yeah. No, I, and we have to ask ourselves these, these questions as unnerving as they can be. Mm -hmm. um, and just since we're on this topic, I'll throw one other thing out here that I'm currently dealing with. This is like, been quite the disruption to my own worldview and I'm trying to like assimilate it. But this realization that left, I've always had an intuition actually about politics, like left versus right has always just felt kind of like a bullshit axis to me. Um, like there's something beneath that. So I've come to view that left, right political spectrum as kind of a false dichotomy. Ultimately, what I think is beneath it is there's only one elementary particle, if you will, to any economy, and that is the individual, right? It's all about individuals and individuals acting, pursuing, pursuing ends with means, you know, this, this is praxeology in a nutshell. Now those individuals organize themselves into collective fictions like society, the state, you know, the greater good, all of this. Um, 
But I just think it's not that that is the real axis. It's the individual versus these collective fictions. And you'll see this in the rhetoric of any statist, right? Stay home for the greater good. Um, you know, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. There's always some ambivalent, nebulous, moral, greater good related to these collective fictions that you're supposed to serve uh, contrary to your own individual self-interest that ultimately uh, is used as a tool of manipulation. I think, you know, I'm partly influenced here, largely influenced by Rothbard, partly influenced by what I've been reading from Ayn Rand as well. And they come to the same conclusions, again, with much more eloquent and sophisticated arguments. But it's like, if you just stop and really think about it, only individuals exist and only individuals act. There is no society acting. There is no society's good and society's bad. Like, it's just an agglomeration of individuals. And then you draw some arbitrary line around it. You circumscribe the group and say, this is society, or this is the state, or this is whatever, Bitcoiners. You can make up any collective fiction you want, but it's ultimately arbitrary, whereas individuals are real. So I think the actual axis is individualism v. collectivism. I think that 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 touches uh, that that gets a lot closer to I think to what I think and that the way I the way I, I trust selfishness. I think selfishness is mm -hmm. you know selfishness. By the way, altruism is selfish. You can do an altruistic yeah. thing for selfish reasons because it mm -hmm. it feels really good to help someone. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And so I think um, I want to know why someone's doing something for them. And what you said squares with my own need to identify the selfish best interest of someone in their actions. Um, and just getting back to Bitcoin, I feel like as a, as a, social coordination mechanism and you've said this a lot money as as the best social coordination mechanism we have as the way in which we channel everyone's effort towards a a, a sort of um the net result is a collective is a, a collective effort but it's a collective effort made of everyone striving to take part in the profits of the individual effort yes yeah and money and credit is a huge part of that. I mean, it's the credit is is the the arbiter of capital being given to someone who's willing to put in time. Yes. Yeah, it's the substrate through which these wishes are expressed. Mm -hmm. Right, and the, and I mean, again, just a Mises point: like the more coercion you can get out of that expression the more everyone's serving the aggregate wishes of consumers as indicated through their buying and selling behaviors. So that is the actual greater good, right? If we define the greater good as like, what do the most people want? Well, that's what the free market zeroes in on by honoring the reality of individual self-ownership, self-interest, et cetera.